This is a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. Go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Jamiroquai there, Cloud9. It is uh, five past four. You're on In Your Face on 3CR with James. And what a historic week it's been. A yes vote with every state and 133 electorates out of 150 voting yes. A phenomenal result. And uh, we have some sound from the yes announcement uh, that the wonderful Mike Vessio has recorded, our wonderful producer. What do we want? When do we want it? What do we want? The most important part of this to me today as an Aboriginal gay black woman is it reminds me of the 1967 referendum when Aboriginal people were taken off the floor and fauna rack and given citizenships to our own country. Today we're going to be recognised as human beings. This campaign has been hard on all of us. It has targeted rainbow families. We see you rainbow families. We support you. It's targeted the trans gender community. And we are stronger when we stand together and we will leave no one behind. No one. And I just want to acknowledge, these are the stats that we've got from the Equality Campaign. We knocked on 102,620 doors. We made over one million phone calls. Real people chatting with Aussies about equality. We handed out five million leaflets reminding people to vote their yes vote. We distributed 250,000 posters. We wore yes with pride, handing out 150,000 badges. It's now up to the politicians to do their job and enable a free vote in Parliament as soon as possible on marriage equality. Thank you. I want to thank the tens of thousands of people who took action for this campaign, who knocked on doors, who made phone calls, who put up posters, who did whatever they needed and were able to do. All of those millions and millions of conversations over dining, over the dinner table, over the barbecue, over the water cooler, over and over and over again. And I want to thank the millions of people who voted for fairness, for the idea that every Australian should be able to marry the person they love. But I especially want to acknowledge those LGBTI people who came before, whose bravery paved the way for today. I want to acknowledge the LGBTIQ young people who waited with their hearts in their mouths to see the outcome of this survey. You now know, in the majority of Australia, you are loved, you are accepted, You are heard and you are seen. It gets better and our future is brighter. Our country has changed and we are all the better for it. Good morning, everyone. My name's David Kalish and I'm the Australian statistician. I'd like to welcome everyone here to the Australian Bureau of Statistics. I called this media conference to announce the results of the Australian Marriage Law Postal Survey. With this high and consistent participation rate across ages, states and territories and Commonwealth electorates, Australians can have confidence these statistics 
reflect the view of the eligible population. And now the official results of the Australian Marriage Law Postal Survey. For the national result, yes responses, 7,817,247, representing 61.6%. The majority yes outcome was recorded for 133 electorates. And the majority no outcome was recorded for only 17. The full results will shortly be made available on the dedicated Marriage Law Postal Survey website, marriagesurvey.gov. Five, four, three, two, one. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio. In your face on 3CR with James. And on the line, I have marriage equality activist and campaigner Chris Kennewell. Chris, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thanks so much for having me. What a fantastic result. You must be over the moon. Oh, look, uh, the glitter is not washing off, and frankly, I'm, I'm very happy with that. Um, yeah, it was a magic moment. Now, tell us what you were doing when you actually heard the announcement. Oh, that's easy. I was one of the people that was right in front of the stage at the Victorian State Library. So a few of us had been following the campaign for some time, and uh, I was lucky enough to be there with the camera mostly facing uh, the LGBTIQ plus community and uh, capturing that moment on, I won't say film because we don't really use that anymore, but on cards. So, yeah, and of course celebrating myself. The result was absolutely extraordinary when you consider that 133 electorates out of 150 actually voted yes. Did that surprise you? I mean, that's, that's bigger than most referendums. I was quite stunned by that, actually. I think most people were. Um, I didn't expect such a high number, but really I hadn't been too connected to that many groups around the country. But, uh, you know, look, I was hopeful, but I was still quite stunned that it was so high. All the focus now, of course, is on the government and the Smith Bill. Of course, they have to legislate. Do you think it's adequate uh, or do you think it's okay if it is amended? Look, I think, uh, I think there are real concerns from a lot within the community and as advocates if it is subject to a lot of amendment. I think a lot of thought has obviously got into it. And my personal view is that it probably has been massaged quite a bit, just from a general sort of perspective, looking at uh, the lay of the land and where we are as a society. I think that that's probably needed to occur. But I do have some real concerns about, I guess, that, that goalpost being being shifted too far to perhaps introducing legislation that already exists in other areas into that bill. Are you confident the PM can keep his promise and uh, ensure the legislation for marriage equality gets up by Christmas? That's a really good question. He sees himself up for a I bit think, of failure, possibly, hasn't he? Yeah, look, I don't know where he's going to go to now. I think he's got a lot on. I would have to say that it could be quite surprising, but obviously there will be extensive debate still. So I'm not quite sure that he can do it in that time frame, to be honest. The regional vote was absolutely extraordinary. Why do you think it was so high? And (laughs) was it to do with uh, perhaps mental health issues being so prominent? Oh, look, I think the answer to that is quite simple. I think regional communities, uh, once they have people living in them that identify and that are public and can be known, 
and uh, people have an opportunity to get to know individuals that perhaps they haven't had exposure to before with their culture and their values and so on, there's a real opportunity to educate people. Um, and my experience, and certainly being in contact with many groups around the country as a, an early career stage urban designer has been just that. Uh, often there are stories of areas that we we're quite concerned about and those communities have ended up uh, reaching that tipping point and in some ways they seem to actually be leading this charge. So it's been uh, an amazing story and of course those will keep coming through. And of course, it's something the community has been talking about for so many years. I mean, on this show, we've been talking about marriage equality for 20 years and we've finally achieved it. Tell us a bit about your journey as a marriage equality activist. Well, it's been a long one. Mm. That would probably be the first one to, <laughs> to know. It's been a very long one. We all have lives and we all have different rates at which we progress and, and learn and in some cases unlearn and, and challenge our own assumptions and beliefs. But I think a path to that for me has been personally being exposed to, to different social networks and being exposed to higher education. I have to say that had a lot to do with it. I've been quite heavily involved for some years in advocating for child protection matters as well. And of course, as part of that conversation, I've realised that there's, there's a real issue here in households when it comes to the identity of young people and the responses to those people. So really, that's something that's influenced me a great deal. What do you think the next big campaign is going to be? I mean, I know it's hard to kind of fathom what next because it's been such a massive kind of, you know, journeying campaign, but what do you think our focus should be next? So many things going on at once. I know, it's so hard to pick, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. I think um, I think the unions, to be honest, are, are probably right on the money. They have a campaign coming up around gendered violence in workplaces, and I think that that's something that really does need to be addressed. Of course, we experience that in all forms of life. But uh, I've found that often they do lead campaigns that do really tap into the community spirit and into the needs of people. So I'd be very surprised if that one doesn't come up off the back of things like, of course, Harvey Weinstein and that whole scandal. To what extent do you think marriage equality being achieved kind of you know, shows that the gay and lesbian community has kind of become mainstream? And is that a good thing? Oh, of course. Look... The example of the yes slash mob, I think that's a brilliant example of it. This is a true case of where people in this community have stepped forward and have chosen to embrace part of their identity. It's certainly not the only part of uh, many different individual identities and and intersections uh, of that identity that people will form separately. But in embracing things like your rainbows and your sequins and your fabulous flamboyance, I think they've really brought that into the mainstream. And I think for the first time, what I've experienced, and this is right throughout the country, is that people are genuinely listening. Uh, We also acknowledge, too, that there are many people that will present very differently, and if you like, very conservatively. And, of course, we're validating all of those identities and refusing to leave any of them behind. So I think that's a a really unifying moment for the movement, Uh, but certainly the experiences that I'm hearing and that I'm having personally are all about people really allowing space for conversations to occur and also they've got the confidence now to check their understanding. So I think that's some real progress that's actually happening there. And I think the result's been great for the country. I mean, so many people have a spring in their step now, not just our GLBTI people, but you know, people from all sections of the community. It's, um, it's something really, really positive and it's kind of uplifting or it's very uplifting. 
at a time when politics has become so disenchanting for so many of us? Oh, yes. Look, I couldn't have expressed that better myself. I think people are really feeling buoyed by this, and I think there was a situation where a lot of hope was actually being being lost in the whole process, and certainly people were very disengaged. But coming back to a position, or in some cases embracing a position where people are feeling that they have a legitimate, I guess you could express it as a political identity, uh, or are happy to identify as an activist or an advocate or in a lobbying capacity, I think that's a, a really positive thing. And certainly in the regional communities, there are so many projects that have come out of this whole conversation. I think that that is something that we have the potential to really ride the tide of for a very long time, and I certainly hope that can happen. I think one of the great ironies of the result is, of course, that our Tony Abbott's electorate voted 75% <laughs> yes. I wonder how he feels about that. Yeah, I do. I do wonder. I think there may have been a new uh, mural as well that's popped up uh, in response to that. So certainly the community is continuing to express its voice. And of course, through art, what better way? Chris, congratulations. It's a wonderful result. We're all absolutely delighted. Thanks for all your great work. And uh, no doubt we'll see you around the hustings on the next campaign. Oh, we certainly will. Thanks so much. Thanks for your time, mate. Janice Joplin there, my baby. You're on In Your Face on 3CR with James. And uh, a bit's away, but she did this wonderful pre-record earlier. And here it is. I'm joined now by writer, activist, theatre maker and the Guardian columnist Van Batham to discuss the Me Too social media campaign, which followed the sexual abuse accusations against producer Harvey Weinstein. So welcome, Van. Oh, hi. hi. Thanks for having me. <laughs> OK, so since October 15, women across the world have been writing Me Too on social media to raise awareness of sexual assault and harassment. And what the campaign has revealed so far is how sexual assault and sexual harassment is part of just about every woman's experience. Van, you wrote of your experience of Me Too and how you found it both liberating and annihilating. Could you tell our listeners what, uh, more about what you meant by that? When I was a very young woman and was living overseas, I found myself in an extremely vulnerable situation where I was working on a group project. Everybody involved was very young. We were all very ambitious. And there was an extremely powerful man who crossed our path, who identified me at the time, being very young, very inexperienced, part of a a group of others who were all men, by the way, young men. He was in a position to exert power and influence over me as a young person and uh, recruited my participation in his life in a way that the Harvey Weinstein scenarios that have been communicated by the likes of Daryl Hannah and Rose McGowan and Annabelle Mm -hmm. Oskiora, I found myself in a very similar situation. It's a terrible thing for me to be obliged to remember and I think the thing is that so many women are put through experiences like that where they are made to feel powerless, where they are coerced into situations that they'd rather not be in, where they feel like they have no resources to escape. In my case, this man was so powerful that this project that involved so many people, I felt that my behaviour threatened others if I didn't sort of go along with what was intimated to me was necessary. And I think with the the revelations around Weinstein, a lot of women are revisiting and reliving things that they've suppressed, that they try not to think about. Situations where their own powerlessness was exacerbated, where they felt that sense of the differential that goes between men and women, older men and younger women, uh, powerful, well 
resourced men and young women who have little money or assets. That's why there's been such an outpouring of rage in the wake of the Weinstein revelations. The Me Too campaign is not the first of its kind. There have been similar ones. Um, so Alyssa Milano, I think, ignited this campaign on Twitter in October. Tarana Burke first created Me Too 10 years ago, but there's been others like UOK Sis and Being Raped Never Reported. Why do you think that Me Too has been so successful so far? What is successful? I mean, successful is that there are women who feel that they can talk about the things that have happened to them. That's great. And obviously I've participated in that and I feel comfortable doing so in the way that I haven't previously felt comfortable talking about what happened to me. Because, I mean, the experience of that kind of sexual exploitation or abuse or sexual violence is shameful. Like the whole tactic of a rapist is to imbue a victim with shame. And I think the thing is that, you know, there's an enormous power that just comes from a collective realisation of shared experience that there are just so many women that this has happened to. And the idea that there is a strength in numbers, that I've described it as an act of mass collective de-shaming. Yeah. Because that sort of personalised, individualised, individuated sense of personal failure or, or personal moral collapse or anything else that your predator, perpetrator, rapist has convinced you is your fault. The moment that you start seeing what's happened to you as syndromatic as opposed to some kind of individual moral failing, that is really quite liberating. And that in itself is worth doing. Like to talk about what happened to me and be part of a community of women who are sharing those experiences is to be liberated from that shame. And I'm never, ever going to undermine the power of that. We live in a patriarchal society where wealth and power and resources and structural advantage is massively disproportionately concentrated in communities of white heterosexual men. And that power differential until it is equalised and readdressed, we're going to have a situation where women do continue to find themselves vulnerable in these kind of situations. Because what we know about the history of all hitherto existing society is that a ruling class does not give up its power easily. And no. also a ruling class protects itself against uh, attempts by others to hold it to account and to bring it into line. So is something like Me Too helping society understand that sexual assault and sexual harassment is not actually about sex and it's actually about power? I think that's helping enormously. I mean, I was reading articles today of people going, oh, but, you know, it is about sex. And it's like, no, actually, it really isn't. That's no. not what's going on at all. And reading some of the testimonies of people like Daryl Hannah, in particular Annabella Sciorra, she talks about the night that she alleges Harvey Weinstein raped her. According to Annabella Sciorra, she submitted to a forced penetration against her will and then Harvey Weinstein ejaculated on the nightgown that she was wearing. And it's just such a detail of, like, humiliation and, like, territorial marking, you know, to remind her that she's just an object for his control. I mean, that's not about sex and that's not about being sexy. That's about the theatrics of domination and Weinstein revealing in that. And there are a lot of stories like that around these particular events. And it, it's pretty obvious that... Again, there are allegations that Harvey Weinstein employed ex-Mossad agents from a private investigation firm to follow and befriend and stalk and monitor um, the women he was concerned would bring allegations against him. 
Um, it was reported in the New Yorker yesterday in another article by Ronan Farrow that Rose McGowan had been targeted by agents who were under the employ of lawyers allegedly employed by Harvey Weinstein to monitor whether she was going to talk to the media or not. I mean, it is just extraordinary to consider that. And the important thing is to understand why that exists and why there are men who do this to women. And overwhelmingly, like, this is... These are misogynists with privilege. Misogynists with privilege can afford to pay private investigators who used to work for Mossad to stalk and monitor women who can afford to control your hotel booking and your flight and, and can exert... Their, their power to materially disrupt your life in those kind of ways. Misogynists who don't have the privilege of wealth and power do it in other ways, by simple stalking, by cyber stalking, by threats, violence, text messages and intimidation. Um, this week, in the wake of the horrible slaughter in Texas, they discovered that the perpetrator of that violence had a history of violence against women and uh, the mother of one of his former partners was actually the target of a series of abusive messages before the killing spree took place. And, of course, she was expected to be in that church that he shot up. There was an article in Business Insider today that crunched through some statistics that said of these sort of mass murder events that have happened in the West over the past 10 years, nine out of 10 of them, they've been able to find a history of misogynistic violence in the perpetrator. Another thing that I'm finding coming up again again, it's the culture of victim blaming, I suppose. People not understanding why a woman wouldn't run, you know, physically speaking when it was safe or possible to do so or why she complied. You know, not understanding the brutal economics of inequality and, and, and how that would drive the decisions women are forced to make. That's a really good way of describing it is the brutal economics of inequality. There are a lot of women who have been obliged to endure sexual harassment in the workplace because their income is based on on that workplace and to run, to walk away from that, mm. will leave them destitute. Women who are in codependent economic relationships with partners, I mean, you have to remember that there is only one suburb in all of Sydney and all of Melbourne combined where rent is low enough for the average female worker to afford to live independently. There are no inner city suburbs left where women can live independently anymore mm. because we don't earn enough money because of the structural economic disadvantage and the fact that women have less property, own less property, inherit less property, all of these things. You know, the, the phenomenon of elder abuse in our community is absolutely rife and I don't think it's any coincidence that, you know, the most rapid-growing um, homeless population in Australia is older women, women who retire uh, with less superannuation because they've been out of the workforce because they're obliged into caring roles. We know that women earn less money because of all kinds of structural biases. It's these very real structural inequalities that create situations that make women vulnerable to exploitation. And people who don't get that, I envy them. I would love to be so privileged that I couldn't imagine what it'd be like. I'd love to think that I didn't have the imagination to understand the things that have happened to me personally. I'd love to have that that arrogant privilege of insulation against the reality of the economics of desperation. Unfortunately, um, especially when I was a younger woman with no assets, no power, no social standing, I didn't have those opportunities. I wish I did. So you spoke about your feelings of rage. Absolutely. I want to talk about how women's anger for, you know, is, is often discredited, despite anger being a justified response to the world that women live in. You know, calling us crazy, divisive, misandrous, or the classic, hysterical. I get why, that all the time. Yeah, why aren't we allowed to be angry? 
I mean, we're not allowed to be angry because that's a system of cultural policing mm -hmm. that's about protecting a particular kind of wealthy male privilege. If you discredit from an onset position anyone who critiques the way that power is exercised by the powerful, well, that actually reinforces your power because you can't get a, a witness on the stand. And this is the thing, like people participate in this form of delegitimizing because these are the lessons that we learn through culture about our place in the hierarchy. And even if it's a low place, maintaining that status uh, gives people a full sense of, of remaining safe. I did an article a few months ago uh, talking about John Laws, who's oh. just like a cretinous old gas bag, <laughs> made some kind of revolting comment about how um, he only let his female employees wear skirts to work. Basically, yeah. it meant that he should spend the rest of his life in a can of ham. And people like Jessica Rowe and Ida Buttrose, who are women who I really admire, they were like, you know, he means well. And I was like, how can you possibly think that? Like, you are mm. intelligent, capable women who've been in the leadership roles. And I read this really interesting psychological study that was done about passive sexism and the way that, mm. you know, women are encouraged to make excuses for men because not only of a system of network dependency, but the idea of stepping out of line or challenging that is really destabilising and that people much prefer to remain in a low-power, disempowered position than to risk that position by challenging authority, even if that challenge could result in like a, a gaining of status. And it was really very depressing, but the study sort of gave me some space to forgive women who do make those kind of excuses because that's symptomatic of just how absolutely out of whack the power differentials are. Well, it's like, it's like a, a, an eternalised sexism or internalised misogyny even. But we're also forced in this culture, I think, to placate men that's protocol. And I mean, we've inherited literally thousands of years of cultural practices that tell us that that's how we should behave, that that's the secret to our social preservation. The reality is that it was still legal to rape your wife in parts of Australia until yeah. 1995. Mm -hmm. The law didn't protect women from abuse and assault. We were in an incredibly, incredibly disadvantaged position socially, as well as legally, as well as economically for a long time. The inheritance of that is still with us. And the idea that we should placate people, you know, you've got to get along to get along is a survival strategy. That's, you know, for many people, that's what you've got to do. And it's very hard to step out of that role and requires certain kind of resources that allow people to organise, to seize power, to create new structures. And it's very difficult. I mean, especially if you're looking at the history of the feminist movement, there are some incredible divisions in the feminist movement that come from the fact that you have feminists who have themselves come from really privileged circumstances. Well, understandably, they're the people who've had the, the least to lose in making a lot of the demands of the system. And of course, it gets very complicated when you're like, if you don't understand the deprivations of my situation, how can you possibly campaign to improve them? All of these things are symptomatic of just the incredible concentration of wealth and power that patriarchy bestows on a very small percentage of men. I understand a lot of men feel that they're unfairly targeted by feminist yeah. campaigning when women talk about, you know, male privilege and the patriarchy. And the reason why I use terms like male privilege and the patriarchy is specifically because they don't apply to all men. Like, the thing to remember is that all women are oppressed because of their gender. No men are oppressed because of theirs. Men can be oppressed by their race or their class or their sexuality or their geography or their generation or their ability status. All of these things can oppress men. 
but at no point in your life will your gender be the source of your oppression if you're a man. And the privilege that's dispensed so unequally, like it is concentrated in men. And that's something that men have to be aware of when they hear the discussions that we make around gender and power. That's the thing. It's such a difficult conversation to have with men. I mean, at its most basic level, I don't know, uh, patriarchy, what it hands a man is, is privilege because if he follows the rules of masculinity, if he performs it, he can expect to have an advantage over women. Well, this is the thing. I mean, until very, very recently in this society, um, and, and I speak specifically of Australian society, all you had to do to wake up and be superior, feel superior and have superior status over more than half the population was to be a man. Our legal system and our pay rates, like equal pay only came to Australia in the 1970s. Like these kind of very, very recent comparatively recent events meant that you have generations of men who are still with us who were born and raised in a society that told them that they had the privilege of domination over women in every aspect of their lives. And I can imagine it must be terrifying for those men to find that sort of authority they were raised with challenged by this horrible demand that um, they be considered equally on their own merits as opposed to promoted above their station merely by patriarchal traditions. And so it's not that I have sympathy for the rage of the hysterical, unreasonable men who attack me on the internet all the time. I don't have sympathy yes. for that, but I can understand the context in which it occurs. And, um, and I, I find it symptomatic, in fact, of the gains that women are making, that there are men who feel displaced by equality. Male complicity, how do we talk about that when how complicity works? Just because a man hasn't raped someone it doesn't mean he's not contributing to a culture of sexism that oppresses, objectifies and harms women in an exhaustive list of ways. I believe absolutely overwhelmingly that the majority of people believe in equality in Australia. I think equality is a really Australian characteristic for all kinds of reasons. I think that the majority of Australian men don't like the idea that there should be any kind of gender imbalance. But the reality in Australia, of course, is that we have one of the most gender-segregated workforces in the world. We certainly have one of the most gender-segregated workforces in the OECD. We create masculine and feminine spaces. And be when you start gendering spaces and creating systems of socialisation where only one gender is present. That means that, you know, the, the way that you represent genders to one another becomes based on stereotypes and inherited traditions that are associated with either a male or female experience. The idea that we still have single-sex schools in this country, I think, is ridiculous for a start. The idea that, that we have workforces that are so heavily dominated by men or so heavily dominated by women is a real cause for concern because it means that something is going on socially that is driving people into performances of their gender that are based around other life choices that perhaps don't represent them or their interests in the way that they should. Well, that's the thing. It's, you feel so overwhelmed when we think or talk about the, the, this issue. There are ways that you can address these issues in our community. Yeah, absolutely there them. are. <laughs> I mean, and this is, I find myself getting to this discussion with people a lot. We actually live in a democracy and a democracy is a really powerful and incredible thing because a democracy means that without having to kill anybody, you can express <laughs> a point of view and win other people to your point of view and actually exert pressure over the levers of power. And anybody who tells you, oh, democracy is broken, it's not working, isn't actually an activist because I've seen 
in my own life, the most incredible gains for people that have been won by dedicated groups of people forming organisations and campaigning in their interests and in the interests of other people and in the interests of the collective good. And in a democracy, a collective good argument always wins. And mm. as feminists, if what we're saying is, well, we want to live in a community without violence, we want to live in a community where everybody's family feels safe, we want to live in a community where we can rely on the structures of authority to protect everybody, not oppress everybody. We want to live in a community where everybody has the right to an education, everybody has the right to breathe clean air, everybody has the right to pursue their vocation. Well, that's actually a pretty compelling argument for men as well. Having the confidence in the vision as that's articulated is actually the difference. I feel like I can exhale on that. <laughs> that was a really positive note to end the interview on. Thank you so much, Van, for being with us. Okay, no problem. Take care, darling. Thank you. And that was Van Bandom talking to Yvette Keane. It's 4.38 and you're on In Your Face on 3CR. Here's Alicia Keys. When a girl can't be herself no more I just want to cry I just want to cry for the world When a girl can't be herself no more I just want to cry I just want to cry for the world In the morning from the minute that I wake up What if I don't want to put on all that makeup Who says I must conceal what I'm Maybe all this Maybelline is covering my self-esteem Whose job is it to straighten up my curves? I'm so tired of that image, that's my word What if today I don't feel like putting heels on? Who are you to criticize when beauty's on the eyes of the beholder? So behold her Say, 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 why are listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.